Losing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. Today, Dave and I are joined by Judith Weir, a widely celebrated composer whose music for the opera stage, concert hall, choirs and communities around the world is full of storytelling and colour. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) That sounded very Radio 4 today, Jill. It was a very nice intro. (laughs) I'll spoil it now. (laughs) Um, Judith, lovely to meet you. We we, um, traditionally start these conversations by asking... um, what was the first piece of music that you can remember going wow to that really affected you as a child? Oh, well, that is, is a difficult one just to come up with immediately. Um, I often man- mention my dad's uh, record collection. He was an amateur trumpet player and particularly loved um, in classical music with, with high trumpets. So possibly the second Brandenburg concerto with its amazing high High trumpet part. Yeah, and you, you'd have heard that on a record, presumably. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, nobody yeah, yeah, yeah. was playing that <laughs> yeah, yeah, at yeah. our home. <laughs> I mean, I think you played the oboe, didn't you? I did, yes, indeed. And when did you start doing that? Well, I started the oboe, I suppose, age 11, you know, secondary school. Yeah. But uh, I should mention I played the recorder before that, and I, I often mention this. That was um, a thing in primary schools of my generation that most people, you know, there'd be a whole class playing them, but I really took to it. Um, so I, I do regard that as formative as, as well. I, I was... <laughs> similar generation that we boys and girls played the recorder mm-hmm. in our class and I seem to remember it was very competitive there was there was a book scheme that you had to work your way yes, through yes you're right I think <laughs> you that's right to really get to the end of them yeah that, that's right well it was really integrated into the school system and we might think now oh what a horrible idea a whole classroom of kids playing the recorder but I, I think a few few of us did get something out of that and I think it involved reading music those books as well definitely did yeah yeah you know playing the oboe and the recorder when did you first start to write music down what what how did that start well I think I did write uh, little you know notations uh, quite early maybe uh, you know as a small child but that couldn't have been seen as composing but when I was in secondary school a group of my friends we, we used to play in lunch breaks and I started to arrange music very very traditional tunes and so on um so that that involved me in writing music and writing a, on staves with with several lines at once did the, doing that sort of pull you towards then going from arranging to writing your own original work or did that come later no i think uh, that was absolutely how it started um and uh, was a very natural 
part of, of all that. I didn't think of these two activities as, as separate. Uh, that's mm. how I started, really. And, and having sort of started writing down music, playing music uh, <laughs> with other people, uh, at what point did you say, OK, I'm going to be a composer? Because I know, you know, you worked in education uh, for a while. You know, what was that turning point? Well, I um, think that during my teens, I was very interested in new music. And um, as some people know, I was terribly fortunate to live in the same outer London suburb as John Tavener, who yes. knew my music teacher at school. And uh, that was a fantastic thing. I, on, on several occasions, I took my work around to, sh to show him. He was such a generous uh, inspiring person. Uh, so I must have been thinking a bit like I, I am being a composer here. But on the other hand, I, I didn't really go around saying this to people. Mm. Um, I think my parents would have thought, what on earth is she going on about? <laughs> and um, and I, we have to unfortunately mention this subject that at the time it was very much uh, thought as something that boys and not girls did. So I didn't go around saying I am a composer. I had lots of musical interests. Um, at the end of my university, three years, um, I was very fortunate to be chosen as a kind of community composer by the Southern Arts Association. Doesn't exist anymore. So I think at that point, that started me thinking, well, I'm actually, they're paying me a very small amount of money to do this as my job. And I think that's from that point was was it what did they ask you to do well interestingly i almost compare it with what i do now um i visited a lot of um, places out, out there they're mostly rural counties places like dorset and wiltshire isle of white mm -hmm. uh, and um a lot of school visits and um some adult education and a lot of just village centres, you know, people might have um, weekly meetings uh, and I would come and give a talk. I also wrote pieces of music for those, uh, some groups there. I don't think any of those are still extant, as as it were, but um, they were certainly proper pieces that, that I uh, had to write for them. Yeah, and how, how did the career gain momentum from that point? Well, I was writing slightly more uh, advanced pieces. Um, I had had some lessons uh, during my university time and the final year from Robin Holloway. And I also went to Tanglewood and indeed had a few lessons with Gunther Schuller, who's a, a great figure. Um, so I was writing uh, pieces that would sometimes be played in, in young composer competitions, that kind of thing. I think that was the first thing, sending it in to these uh, sort of things. Um, there were a couple of very significant musicians who took an interest in my work. The first was Peter Maxwell Davis, and uh, I wrote a couple of pieces for his group, The Fires of London. And the other is Jane Manning, uh, absolutely legendary soprano, for whom I wrote my first vocal work, King Harold Saga, and that is uh, the first work, Opus One sort of thing in, in your uh, wise music catalogue of, of my music. So all these pieces were happening. Uh, as, as we all know, it, it's, a, it's a very slow progress towards um, doing vaguely full-time composing. Was King Harold, was that Harold Hardrada? It, uh, yes, it, it was. Over, yes, no. <laughs> 
I, very historically, <laughs> a number of your operas are, are yes. sort of historically set, aren't they? Indeed. But I, I, I'm fascinated by that period, the, I think yes. the, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, when the, 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 the Scandinavians attacked from the north and the yes. Nor Normans were attacking from the south, yeah. Indeed, I, I think it's an absolutely iconic moment in, in uh, English history, and particularly the last time that England was really invaded by, by some other people, uh, just three weeks after the, yeah. the, the battle you were talking about, because it was also the year of the Battle of Hastings. Um, so I enjoy kind of finding these moments in history or in culture that will mean a lot to people without them having to read a book about it themselves. They'll, they will know about that, I think. Are you, are you interested in history generally? Is it something you read a lot of? Or? Well, not so specifically, but an awful lot of the research I've done in my pieces is about history because it's about our culture. I think I'm interested in in culture, not just the, the one that I live in. But uh, And so that does involve a lot of reading, and I, I enjoy that, yes. It's a, a real supplement to my work. What was the first piece of music you got paid to write? <laughs> now, that's a good question. Um, I think... It was the first piece I wrote for Maxwell Davis, and that is not in the catalogue anymore. It's called 25 Variations. And uh, that's, and it was, you know, very much that kind of modernist, um, you know, post-Schoenberg uh, type piece. So feel happy that <laughs> it's not yours. But I think I got that commission just, just as I was leaving university. That would have been my first uh, professional commission. That's fantastic. And... I I know it was a wee while ago, but did that change your approach to writing it? It was like, oh, somebody's paying me for this. It's <laughs> um, an interesting question because, of course, you do have a, a an actual, as it were, legal obligation to get that yeah. piece ready on, on the day you, you said. Um, I think by that time, because I had gone through writing pieces for competitions and um, – even in our last year of university, I mean, very old-fashioned Cambridge University, really composing didn't play a big part, but we, we did have to get a portfolio ready. So that thing of, of working to a deadline was already um, uh, familiar. They are. I, maybe I should have uh, paid a bit more attention to that important moment of no, being paid. <laughs> I think the deadline is the, it's the composer's curse, really, isn't yes. it? Yes. You know, and I can now celebrate you as one of the few composers who are always 100% ah. time. Well, I, that's very kind of you. Thanks to good <laughs> footwork by you guys sometimes on my behalf. Um, I have to admit, really, we're talking about 50 years of, of me doing this, that um, the deadlines are also a help. I mean, I'm not one of those people uh, who works right. I hate working right up to a deadline. Sometimes it can't be avoided. But um, I wonder how many of my pieces I would have written without that actual obligation to get it finished. It's all very well to think, um, oh, I'd like, love to write this or that or the other. Um, will it actually get written in a form that's actually final, given to a performer and, and heard? I think that's how it works, really. Of course, I've written the odd thing. Not in that way. Mm. But I'm a practical composer and I... I like to think that my work will be performed. So that involves some kind of agreement with performers that on some day or other, it that will happen. So I think that's always involves a deadline, really. Yeah, 
and almost it's sort of refreshing to know that there's a point at which this thing will take flight. Indeed, and, and a point at which you've got to stop making excuses that you must uh, uh, get. I, I have sometimes felt with some of my pieces that the deadline came too soon. I mean, I didn't want to miss the deadline. I, I admit that there are probably the odd piece here or there where I've had to speed up towards the end, but sometimes that also has its good side. You know, there can be a kind of vitality about those uh, Situations um, I, these days, I, I try not to think about it at all, really. Mm. Um, and again, thanks to the good footwork of you and your colleagues, to try and arrange that the delivery dates are way, way in advance. I have no need, apart from a few special situations, to do things uh, in a hurry anymore. Yeah. And, and so, do you have um, a, an approach to writing? Do you do you have a particular way you do it? A, a place, a time? Do, do you use particular? tools? <laughs> well, I certainly have a place to do it, which is the room that I'm speaking to you from now, my room at the back of my house. Um, I've occasionally done work elsewhere. I can remember one year I was teaching in America and I had a college room, so I somehow managed to, to write a piece. But uh, <clears throat> I don't seek, um, you know, sometimes people offer residencies, don't they, away from your home. Get That would be no good for me. I, I just sort of do it here. Um, very difficult to say a fixed time because, like most composers, my my days are so unpredictable in the number of things I do, doing other things besides just composing. Um, it usually ends up these days, a, a normal day, the morning, I'm afraid, gets taken up with admin. And uh, so the afternoon is my good time for if I have the chance to to write. Now, particular tools, <laughs> um, I still, again, it's very much thanks to Wise Music. Uh, I'm working uh, pen and ink and before that pencil and uh, eraser. And um, so very, very low tech tools <laughs> are used. Do, do you have a particular table that you, you or, or something that you put the papers on? <laughs> well, yes, I use uh, my teacher, Robin Holloway, used to say, and it's quite right, you work halfway between the table and the piano. So I have a keyboard to my right hand side. You can't quite see it in this view. And um, the, uh, you know, I write some of the music up against that. But uh, obviously, a lot of this uh, handwriting takes place on the on the table. I think, Dave, uh, I'll show you one of Judith's manuscripts at some point, because, Judith, your handwriting is so beautiful. You know, it's almost a shame when it goes into <laughs> um, computer-generated notes. And, you know, the fact that actually Alice Couture, whomever you've been writing for, can just sink straight from the score, uh, I think is wonderful. Well, you know, I, I belong, actually, to the last generation of composers who were kind of professional before process, well, before digital work really yeah. came up. So, in fact, when we did write scores, in, certainly in my, up to my 20s, uh, um, before I was a published composer, um, that's all you could do. We were glad enough that there was such a thing as photocopiers, a very early yes. form of, of them. Uh, so that was a necessity for me and my contemporaries and um, many of my uh, cohort, I mean, Oliver Nuss and Michael Finnessy. Oh, the most beautiful looking 
scores. Mm. Um, I still feel, I mean, I think you may as well write the score neatly as, as not. And I still have a feeling that I work with my hands in a way. I'm. A, it's a bit like a sort of a craft. And uh, so I have the pleasure really of of writing the scores out. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm still able to do it. Do, do you still play an instrument live? at all to, to, other, to an audience? Not to an audience, really, preferably not. Uh, <laughs> most of my playing time is, is on the piano. I do love that. And in fact, if I had more time to myself, that's one of the things I would do. Very occasionally, um, in certain circumstances, I've got two or three little piano pieces that I might play to them. And that, again, is a goal for me in the future, to write a bit more piano music that I can actually play in comfort uh, because uh, like most people so much of it is is a bit beyond amateur performers I think Judith from the very outset um, you've always given your pieces of music amazing titles you know things like thread and the art of touching the keyboard talking of piano pieces from the 80s and Musicians wrestle everywhere. And I think my favourite is the one that you wrote for Two Double Basses, which is What Sound Will Chase Elephants Away. Um, what comes first for you, the music or the title? Well, this is interesting. I mean, ideally, the title, that would be great because those some a lot of those titles, you know, are a, a goal. You know, they, they represent a, a vision of, of what the piece will be. But... An equal number of times I, I'm writing the piece and trying to sum up what's happening in a title. Uh, and that can be a bit of a, you know, sort of a bit of a, not exactly a stress, but a, a worry. I think titles are very predictive these days. I, I think uh, when I started again, um, mm. uh, a lot of pieces were still called symphony or, or they had sort of vaguely science type, you know, Molecule three or something like that. Like one. One. <laughs> yes, exactly. You will know that from your SPNM days. Yes, thank you. Uh, so um, I think now it's very regular that composers, and, and rightly so, have, have interesting titles. It's a way of helping the audience to start thinking about the piece. But uh, that does mean that the title becomes quite predictive and you, you might want there to be more freedom to the listener. Um, so yes, I, the, the answer to your question is both. Sometimes I start yeah. with a title, sometimes uh, try to think of one. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, there's only a couple of pieces that you've written that haven't got titles, you know, piano concerto, I can think of, and string quartet. But apart yes. from that, it's pretty much 100%. Yes. I, I went through a period with these chamber works, it'd be about 20 years ago, of, Again, a kind of abstraction <laughs> and yeah. recalling them. I've got piano trio and piano trio mm -hmm. two and piano quartet. And that's, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> but I love your titles. And Thank you. Keep, keep them coming. Keep them at it. <laughs> and they are, I mean, they're, they're a form of marketing, aren't they? They, they, they attract people. This collection of words that, 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 that pique an interest. I, I think so. I mean, surely people who write, um, novels they must spend all you know a lot of time thinking about that and uh, painters I suppose is the big comparison and uh, you know a painter like Paul Clay who was a musically influenced uh, painter um, 
oh, those wonderful titles that he has, one of which is I have borrowed heroic strokes of the bow, but uh, every one of his paintings have beautiful titles like that. And I, I truly believe that's part of the pleasure of, of an artist like him. Yeah. I, I, we, we touched on a little bit about the history about um, King Harold, but looking at your, your um, operas particularly, they seem to be inspired by historical events. How, how do you, or so, some of them are, some folk tales, some of them seem to be a little bit of literature and some historical, particularly a couple of Chinese um, 13th, 14th century stories. How do you find inspiration and how does that translate into, into music? Well, talking of the operas, I, I think that always uh, involves a lot of reading and... Um, Really, you're, particularly with those pieces where I simply adapted an original, to, somehow to find a libretto within these original works, uh, you're looking for something that will, will work that way, will operate that way. Uh, just a huge, huge amount of reading, I think. Um, Are you looking for a dramatic story more than... Well, I think else. probably, yes, I think so, something that will work on the stage. Um, but, you know, a, a great great many things are dramatic, uh, not necessarily in terms of having been the subject matter of a play that you'd see in the theatre, but we, we were talking earlier about the Battle of Stamford Bridge or England being invaded by the Norwegians. These, these must have been immensely dramatic events to people at mm. the time. So... Uh, it's not difficult, I think, to find the actual dramatic subject, but it, it's more um, what uh, what's going to actually work as a theatre piece. But do, 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 you, do you have a sort of checklist of technical things you're looking for in a story, or is it just the light bulb goes off and you think, this, this could be it? I think it's much more a light bulb thing that um, keep thinking about that, um, my opera Blonde Eckbert, it's based on a uh, story from the early German Romantic period, a very short story, about 20 pages long. And I can remember reading a lot of, there are millions of those short German stories, reading a whole lot of them. But I kept thinking about Blonde Eckbert. I, I think it, it's just such a strange story and it has so much meaning behind it. Uh, anyone could interpret that in, in hundreds of ways. Um I still think, in a way, out of all the subject matter I've ever worked with, that's the most fascinating story I've ever come across. So it's wonderful that I have an opera on that subject, which which does get performed uh, quite regularly. Um, so I don't think you can ever say, oh, I will need this and I'll need that and the other thing. It is much more that something suddenly strikes you with, with great force. Hmm. I, saw, I saw the Blondeck, but there's also a pocket version of it. Yes, How indeed. Did that work? Yeah. Well, I, I think it works. I'm, I'm very glad I did that. Um, the original opera was um, performed at English National Opera, very big theatre, the London Coliseum, and I would say for a, a, an opera of of that scale has done very well. Uh, I most recently saw it just a year or in a concert performance in the Amsterdam Concertgebouw, and it's had, you know, I would say a, a fair number of performances, but 
as we all know, to revive old operas by modern composers is is a tough thing. So about fifteen years ago, one of my one of our colleagues uh, suggested that I made a chamber version, and um, that has been really great. It was hard work. It was about a year's work for me to take a full orchestra. Um, piece lasting whatever it is 75 minutes and really make a completely new rescoring for just 10 people um but it's been great and that really does get quite a few performances and you know sometimes things do or don't get performed but um i i just like the idea that it's um, been useful to a lot of people who who need work on that scale so Really, it was just a technical job of rescoring, but I had to completely reimagine it, having such different forces. And, and was is that intended for a performance as well? You know, dramatic performance. Oh yes, indeed, it does. Yeah. It does get staged, and again, I think this has opened up the piece to some really wild and wacky uh, stagings uh, because in a way there's there's not so much to lose is there with these smaller scale pieces it often gets done in colleges I think the next production is going to be in the Guildhall school this summer so people can really do whatever they <laughs> feel like with it it, it's, uh, it seems to me that that's opera on that scale is is often more successful in in the modern era than the larger um, size pieces. When you write for other pieces, choral pieces, for example, do you do you change the way you write, or because you're not writing to a story so much, how, how do how do you approach those things? Is there any difference? I think the big uh, divide really is between using any kind of text and not using a text. Um, even in choral music, you're working with words. In fact, the words are very central in choral music because there's. Very often you're writing just a cappella. There's not a lot of other instruments. So uh, the words become very central. And I think the big difference is, for instance, I'm writing an orchestra piece at the moment. There aren't any words. That is abstract thought. And, and at the beginning, that's tough, really. You have to come up with every single thing that's going to happen in the piece. Whereas if you've got any kind of words, um, they're there. And very often they exert quite a lot of power, uh, rhythm, maybe melody. Uh, so I would say that is the, those are the two different kinds of composition for me. Not uniquely, but certainly successfully, you also write your librettos for your operas. Well, I, this has been a, a thing I've done, um, yeah. because it, when I started out, I certainly didn't know anybody who would do that for me. Mm. And, um, I sort of have looked out for material which kind of had a libretto in it. Um, a Night at the Chinese Opera, for instance, is based around um, chamber plays, theatre yeah. of, of ancient China, um, and uh, Blonde Eckbert. It's a little story from which you can kind of deduce conversation. Um, it, it, you know, in a way, I would absolutely love to have libretti to set and I believe me I have tried I've uh, you know <laughs> sat down with with a few people over this somehow it has never happened um, and I think I would have I will say I'm extremely fussy and careful about what I do set I think mm -hmm. particularly with something the size of an opera 
to have to kind of argue ev- over every line. But uh, I, I think the young composers of today, it's very fortunate there's a lot more effort put into introducing them at an early stage to people who want to be librettists. This was another thing I used to approach playwrights who weren't that interested in opera, felt rather that it would constrain them, fair enough. So, uh, you know, it, it's not something I particularly recommend. I must say, I'm always very pleased when I hear composers are going to have a go at writing their own libretti. I, I think sometimes they do very, very well. And we can think of examples like uh, Stephen Sondheim or somebody yeah. like that, you know, who, who could be better. Um and you certainly learn a lot about opera from from doing that, but um, yeah, I, it's it's a very difficult area. But indeed, uh, let's just say that quite a few of the pieces that I wrote the libretto for myself are still performed quite successfully. So absolutely, there we are. I'm here, here. <laughs> to touch on a couple of pieces which uh you know so which are dramatic pieces but for different forms so mm-hmm. the scryker for carol churchill and then scipio's dream and armida which were uh both those two were written specifically for the screen mm-hmm. what is different about writing for say a play like as in the striker and also writing opera that's going to be performed on film as opposed to on stage well, questions yes <laughs> i think the thing that's really different is writing for the live theater and again this is something for many years i haven't done just because now i think it all is digital and uh, you know recorded sound um but in the days i was doing this in the 1990s i worked for various companies royal shakespeare company the national theater um they had amazingly live musicians i mean that was a very great era uh, for stage music um but it's certainly different from other composing because you're completely what shall I say, at the mercy of the director. You know, it, it's for them completely to say, I want this bit of music. And then for them to say, actually, we don't need that bit of music anymore. Um, I massively admire people who do it all the time. They must develop a certain personality and speed of working to do that. Um, now, working for these film operas are rather an unusual situation, really. Um I was very lucky indeed, and in fact, you know, I've worked quite a few times with Margaret Williams, who directed both of those pieces. And um, again, that we were just given these slots by one, I think, was the BBC and one was Channel 4 to do these really quite extensive um, film operas. Um, I didn't feel from my point of view that was so different from what I do 
uh, on on the lyric stage. Um, they still needed arias and they needed stories and they had orchestral accompaniments or instrumental accompaniments. Um, we were able to edit them, which was absolutely great. You know, we weren't prey to hoping that the <laughs> performance would be okay and all that stuff. That is a really good side of things that uh, you can uh, tailor your work to uh, the screen. Uh, I had a strange feeling after both of them. I mean, they were both given enough uh, attention and everything, but it was almost like we'd done all that work and yet it hadn't happened. You know, I, for me, I, I'm used to live work. I, I'm completely devoted to live music performance. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm grateful I had the opportunity, but uh, it, it didn't seem like the, the the thing had actually happened until actually both of them have had live performances on, on stage. Difficult, again, to transfer something that's so uh, pared down for a 30-minute or 50-minute slot as a live piece. But uh, that that was interesting to me that I didn't really believe it, <laughs> that uh, those were uh, operas uh, until I actually saw them live on stage. I loved Armida. You ended up in Morocco, didn't you? Didn't that was a fantastic thing. <laughs> I mean, the, the shoot was in uh, Morocco. I visited a, a couple of places on the shoot. It was an extraordinary thing. I mean, how amazing that a, a TV channel, a publicly owned TV channel, was able to do that. Um, I think there's a, presumably all sorts of great things happening now. But goodness, again, my generation, we were very, very lucky with the broadcast media, uh, same with radio, how much they did for us. Going back to your um, position with, you know, South East Arts, as it was at the time, you've written a lot of music for um, communities, and it feels that community, whether that is a, a school or an adult education organisation, is very important to you. You've done this consistently throughout your life. Why is that? Well, I, I don't particularly put these in a different category. I must say, you know, recently, for instance, I've written for a very good, oh, I've just written another one, actually, Amateur Orchestra. Um, and really, apart from the fact that they all work in other fields, uh, it, the experience is, is not that different, except they spend more time rehearsing. Um, and of course, a great deal of choral music is sung by as what should we say, amateur musicians, community musicians. And uh, the same goes for school groups, uh, mm. you know. So I, I I feel I just want to do, I want my activity as a composer to be a proper job and activity and not something cult-like and hidden away. Um, I do feel sometimes in even the world of new music and absolutely present company accepted, there's a complete kind of introversion towards, you know, uh, this or that composer, aren't they important? You know, go five minutes down your street, you won't meet anybody who's ever heard of them. So we really have to do a bit more than just, you know, um, you know, advertising what what's they and we just really have to go out and do these things to, mm. to make music an actual modern activity i think what i'm saying is i want it to be something that happens as a modern thing that that people are doing new music in their own musical settings rather than it being so curated all the time and uh, 
you know, we're lucky with something like the BBC Proms. They do a fantastic job of um, making everyone aware of, of all this music and what mm. comes behind it. But that's the very best example. And quite frankly, a lot of the stuff that goes on, uh, even in some of our biggest concert halls, it's, um, you know, very removed, except from a very small group of people. Also, I think most people who become interested in music do start off in quite a sort of community. You've both told me that you yeah. used to play the recorder in your primary school. I mean, we do see these specialist um, music situations, but on the whole, if we're going to get more people interested in music, it will be through, you know, the nitty gritty places that most of us uh, start our educations in. So... But just, just to be truthful, and if anybody from my primary school is listening to this, play might not be the verb that, that they would use to describe what I did to a recorder. But I did it with a lot of competitiveness at the time. There we go. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you about, um, you recently became master of, I feel so strange to say using the word master, master of the king's music after having been master of the queen's music for, for mm -hmm. quite a while. How, how do you end up with a role like that and what, what does a master of the king's music do well um it, this is you know very hard to to say firstly how do you end up doing it i i don't really know i think buckingham palace take a lot of soundings about this kind of thing it's the same with the poet laureate i guess a lot of people's advice is is asked um this it's certainly not something that you apply for uh, just it's it's offered uh, whether you would like to do it or not um what does the person do again th this is not clear the, the post has existed for almost 400 years when it started i think it was much more of a, a performing musician's job a conductor but in the last certainly 100 years it, it's been composers who've done it and I think in a way that's the good thing now that it's up to you to make something of this opportunity um, there have been things that need to be done and certainly in, in the last year writing pieces for major royal occasions and in fact I've done that I'm now finishing my ninth year in the role so I've, I've written new works almost every year for you know, major national occasions. But it also does give the kind of um, the platform to do things you think are important. And it, what I think is important is what we've been talking about today, just trying to give more support to people working in the community. Absolutely top of the list, school music teachers uh, who still exist and, and do such a great job and just reminding everyone that this is an activity that still goes on and that we must have more of. So it's wonderful to have the palaces, um, you know, just standing behind. This must signify to a lot of people that they think this is important too. Uh, there are many other things I do as well. I have a sort of presidential or patron role with, with quite a few societies, I think a total of about 30 over the, the 10 wow. years. And they're wonderful things, completely different from each other. You know, the, the Royal Society of Musicians, which is a medical musical charity, Benslow Music Centre, that's a centre for amateur musicians, Calm Festival, that's a festival in the middle of Wiltshire, which I first visited over 40 years ago, you know, being president of all these kind of things, it it really is a fantastic way to keep in touch with what's going on. 
Do, do you, um, I, I, I hope, so hope the answer to this question is yes. But do you do you have a particular uniform you, or outfit that oh. you wear when on formal occasions? Well, I wish I did. And you, you know, it's funny <laughs> you should ask that because I went for, uh, when I managed to get three days holiday uh, to uh, near Vienna and visited Eisenstadt, the, the Esterhazy Palace where Haydn worked. And we saw the livery coat that Haydn worked had, which he did wear to the palace. It's a fabulous garment, we thought, with beautiful blue silk and nice uh, gold brocade. Uh, I think that, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I will just say, and this is the same for all women in posts of this kind, the clothes are a, a big subject. You know, you uh, have to dress properly for these things. You know, don't you, that the Daily Mail has a kind of bar of shame if you don't uh, uh, shape up. So um, I have spent actually a nice thing I've done in the more recent years. Uh, a particular friend of mine who is a designer and, and clothes cutter has made me a couple of things that I've worn on palace occasions. So you've actually touched, maybe jokingly, on, on yeah. a rather uh, important subject, I think. No, it must be when you're presenting music and you're part of the whole yes, presentation indeed. of the royal occasion. Indeed, you want yeah. to, to look your best, that's right. I've, I've got two, two other questions around this. One is, do you, do you have an office? Do, do, do you get a, a, a room at a palace? Oh, at the palace. Grand piano um, in and... and no, oh, <laughs> that so would be disappointing. I, I was hoping you would. That would be marvellous, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. uh, but um, I will say there is an office in the palace that looks after, you know, the the, yeah. the, the actual royal, the private secretary's office. They they do a great job. <laughs> no, I was hoping there would be a sort of gorgeous room with a piano yes. and lots of scrolls of manuscripts. Yes. That you blow the dust off from going back 400 years you know it's a thought and with the new king who is so interested in music i mean this will be for my successor of such a thing came up but i i agree with you it'd be a rather nice thing yeah. it, it must have felt a wonderful honor to have been offered this role y yes i think to be honest the the big honor to me my predecessor was peter maxwell davis and uh, he did 10 years uh, it's now a 10-year role and i thought he did very, very good work. He was a very idiosyncratic, unusual man, but um, it seemed to me to succeed him, to be thought of uh, as a person that could be compared with him. That, that for me, was really the honour. Um, Judith, I want to ask you about the human voice, because you're so good at writing for it. Is that particular passion of yours? I mean, lots of music requires professional and amateur, as you say, song cycles first, opus for Chester, or probably novella, was King. <laughs> yes, that's right. Lager. So why? What do you enjoy about that? Well, I think the solo vocal music in particular, it is the singers. I think that they are just the most amazing people in in our profession. They have to perform on their own instrument is themselves so there's no hiding place they have to be very big people somehow yeah. and uh, I think every single solo singer I've written for of whom there are enormous number now they're all absolute one-off remarkable people uh, some are very easy to work with some you know actually nobody's been not not good about it but you mm. know you have to learn 
each one of them again they all are like their own instrument yeah. it's almost like learning another instrument each time so that is fascinating um choral wise I never sang in, in a choir really myself so it's not my world it's a bit separate and I think often choirs actually they don't want the composer to be there for all their rehearsals mm -hmm. that they're, they're having to learn that music note by note but uh, it's certainly a very very uh, sociable warm um, situation um, my most recent piece for a uh, amateur choir was for the Addison singers as a Actually, several choirs in West London, and really, what, what a wonderful group of people to meet. Most unusual. I went to their Christmas party, and blimey, what you know, what what great people. So, I think for choir, it's a a social thing. It, it it's uh, very nice to to be able to join those groups sometimes. Do, 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 when you when you're looking at projects, what what attracts you to particular people to collaborate with? Do, do you have a list in your mind of people that you might like to work with? Or? That's that's uh, interesting. I um, I'm not really so well organised as as that, and I tend to respond. I realise this now almost entirely to demand. Again, you know that might not have been the best thing to have done always, but um, it seems to me very significant if somebody approaches me wanting to work with me, and in a way that is a good way round because. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are not so receptive to new music, or of course they have their own tastes and likes and dislikes. So the fact that somebody has come to me for that reason, that, that they are interested in my work is, is very significant. Um, and they can be all sorts of different people. Um, I think what we're all looking for. And again, I thank very much the people I work with uh, at the publishers. We're looking for genuine uh, circumstances in which to work. You know, I'm going to spend months, I really am, day after day at my table working on this piece. It has to be worth it for me too, in, in terms of the collaboration with this person. So, uh, I guess it's just people I respect and admire, and I perhaps l like the project that that they are going to be doing. I, I I think that's all I can say, really. You've been blogging for nearly ten years. Yes, now, <laughs> and um, you know, on the basis, and we've talked about this a wee bit already. You know, composers tend to be quite private people. Um, what inspired you to start a blog? Well, somehow this just came to my mind. You may have even been in the room with me, Jill, um, when we were talking about starting my post as Master of the Queen's Music. Mm -hmm. And I just suddenly thought, yes, I'm going to start a blog and tell everyone <laughs> what I'm doing. Because, I mean, who reads blogs these days? Maybe 10 years ago they did. But actually, I'm surprised how far the blog goes, you know, that it may not seem huge in, in terms of the number of views per page, but somehow uh, people so often want to discuss what, or indeed print sometimes or quote. So it's been a brilliant way of just telling people, in fact, so often I'm asked what uh, you you asked me about what what do you do in this royal role? It's mm. the best way I can explain is by uh, detailing my travels and particularly sometimes going to smaller things or working with smaller groups, working with community groups. Uh, if I write that up, that's often the only way it does get 
written up. I want to make it a matter of record, whatever happens. Um, and indeed, as we know, with the wonderful internet, it, it stays there on the internet. So if anyone wants to know what happens when I went to Rothsey Academy or something like that, you know, I, that is recorded on, on the blog somewhere. We, we typically sort of draw draw to a close on, on these conversations mm. by asking a little bit about the future. And is there anything particular you're looking forward to? <laughs> Open question. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I have one more year, I think, uh, if things are, if I'm right, as as in my post as uh, Master of the King's Music. And I think I'll be pleased to stop. I mean, it's been absolutely wonderful, so interesting, but I'll be terribly glad to hand that over to somebody else. I think... Um, I will also, I think, step down from most of these patronships, which have all also been fantastic. But I really, really would love to have my open time for for other things now. And I think I will be working even less to commission. I, I do not like the experience of of having. Oh, when I finish this piece, I've got to get on and do that piece. It's inevitable if if you work in this field, but um, I, I really am looking forward to some um, more open time, I think. This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.